and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. I am back, and we are back to putting kids in cages. Seriously. Seriously. When Trump did it, we were all outraged, all of us. Now Biden is back to doing it, and what? Crickets. This was wrong when the Obama administration started it, and it was absolutely wrong when Trump did it much worse. And it is wrong now. Biden and Harris denounced Trump during the campaign, what he was doing with the incarceration of children. We're all here because we know that we have to stand up for our America when the Trump administration overlooks the fact that what is happening with the detention of these children, the circumstances by which they arrived, is a human rights abuse being committed by the United States government. And so we are here to stand up and say that we are not going to allow this to happen, not on our watch. I will tell you, when elected, the first thing I'm going to do, one of the first things, is to shut down these private detention facilities. Mm. Just shut them down. Because let's be clear about what's going on here. There are people who are literally profiting off of the incarceration of children. It is now a little over a month since she was inaugurated with President Biden. And on Monday, the Department of Health and Human Services reopened a Trump-era facility in Texas to house up to 700 teenage migrants. A second facility is also being reopened in Florida. This is the one at Homestead where Kamala Harris made that campaign speech we just showed you. So instead of shutting down a facility she called a human rights abuse, her government is reopening it because... Because, Madam Vice President, can you finish the sentence for me? Because I can't. The Biden White House insists this is temporary and that it is, it's necessary because of COVID and an increase in unaccompanied minors crossing the border. Oh, and White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki insists, quote, this is not putting kids in cages. Oh, sorry, Jen, my bad. It seemed a little bit similar. Reopening these detention centers is not the answer. This is cruel. This is inhumane. I thought everyone to the left of Trump in 2020 agreed on this. This is a dangerous example of a double, a double standard that will corrode the credibility of this administration. There really are things that are right and there are things that are wrong, clearly. And if we start saying it is okay when Obama does it or okay when Biden does it, but it is an outrage when Trump does it, we drain all the moral content, all of it. And politics becomes nothing but red versus blue versus v, whatever, it's a color war. That's all it is. Is it, is it okay when, when, when my side does it because we mean well, and it's wrong when your side does it because we know you are racist and goons? Come on, we really are better than this. People see through this. We need a humane immigration system. We all know this from far left to at least moderate right. We all came together against separating families and putting children in cages just a few months ago. That is the place to begin building back a better immigration system. But if we sink back into make-do management and patchwork solutions, we will lose all momentum to get the work done of creating a new system, a system of justice and humanity, a system that people around the world look to and say, oh, that is the America that so many immigrants fleeing inhumane circumstances went to. The only winners in this system are the private contractors who run those facilities. We can do better. 
And for the good of this administration, we have to do better. We have to find another way, a more humane way to look after these kids. We have to understand what's happening at the border, not patchwork. These are humans. These are human lives. This is a human rights crisis, as Vice President Kamala Harris said. We have a wonderful show for you today. We have Natalie Schur and, oh, oh, Arun Chowdhury is back. What? <laughs> he is a regular. Uh, thank you to Arun for filling in for me yesterday. And uh, we'll talk to him a little bit later. But before that, we have Steve Paxton, who is the author of Unlearning Marks. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to have it with him. We'll be right back right after the break. Welcome back to The Nomi Key Show. Steve Paxton is the author of Unlearning Marx, Why the Soviet Failure Was a Triumph for Marx. Uh, he is also, in addition to an academic career, culminating in doctoral research with G.A. Cohen at Oxford. Steve uh, Paxton has worked on building sites and and embedding shops, a PHP program. This is a whole other industry. It's amazing. Uh, thanks for joining the show, Steve. We, we appreciate you being here. Oh, you're on mute. Okay. <laughs> We're all pros now, which okay. <laughs> pros at not mute, unmuting ourselves. Yeah. Uh, so, Steve, I mean, this is this is a fascinating take um, on on Marx, and I guess I, you know, let's just start off with what inspired you to write this book. Um, I guess so. Partly in response to this uh, this, this kind of right wing talking point, which is that anything they don't like is Marxist and Marx is responsible for the Soviet Union. So as soon as anyone suggests that maybe it might be an idea to kind of have a bit less inequality or something, up pop Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and all the others to say that that's the, the start of the slippery slope to the gulags. And um, during my kind of studies of Marx, it's, it's very obvious that, that this is a, this is just a really wrong headed way to look at Marx. So, um, for one thing, Marx um, predicted failure for revolutions in Russia. Um, and he even wrote to Russian revolutionaries in the 1880s and told them that. He gave them a little bit of a get-out clause, which was that if other countries, more advanced countries, joined in, if the Russian revolution sparked revolutions elsewhere, then there was a chance that a Russian revolution might be successful. But on the whole, he thought that a revolution must come from the most advanced capitalist countries. And, and the reason for that is really that Socialism requires a, a certain amount of material wealth. Right. So if, you, if you try to kind of equalize everything when, when you just don't have enough stuff, all you do is share out shortfall and that annoys everyone and that's not sustainable. So his phrase was all, all the old filthy business would be restored. So he's very clear, his whole theory of history revolves around the idea that um, you need to have capitalism first and you need to have quite advanced capitalism. Capitalism is really good at producing the technological advances, huge leaps in productive capacity to provide the, the material abundance that, social, that makes socialism viable. It's interesting. I, I, I interviewed somebody um, a few months ago and I said that. I remember her face turning and I said, no, I mean, my interpretation, and, and I hope I wasn't reinventing history, was exactly what you just said. But why do you think that... that um, that part of the narrative gets completely eliminated from the conversation and, and, you know, much of it about ending capitalism or challenging capitalism, depending on what you want to, um, how you want to interpret it. 
Well, I think some some of it is left out because the people who control the media and everything don't want that in the narrative. But also, I think um, we on the left as well have to kind of take some blame because we look, we often look at Marx through the the prism of Lenin and Trotsky, um, and that's their their view. They kind of they both knew and they both said in uh, in the early days of the revolution that there was no way they could survive that, that the regime could survive without sparking revolutions elsewhere. And they put a lot of effort into to trying to spark those revolutions. But when they didn't happen, um, then the Soviet Union took a different course. But I think theoretically, people, people tend to look more at um, what Lenin and Trotsky did right, what Stalin probably did wrong, is, is most people's take on things. And we, we tend to judge the Soviet Union in terms of how socialist it was, um, whether, it, whether it ever achieved socialism, how close they came, whether they were on the right track. And actually, really, that's that's diverting us away from looking at the way that Marx may have looked at it. It's understandable because they claim to be a socialist country, and I think they were genuinely trying to be a socialist country. But they very rarely had the chance to actually implement socialist policies. Most of the time, they were reacting to hostilities from outside and, and internal pressures as well. And um, Lenin said a few times that just everyone knows socialism is impossible. The immediate introduction of socialism in Russia is, is impossible. But those circumstances never got any better and socialism was never really a viable option in the Soviet Union, particularly if you look at that from Marx's point of view. And he, he focused so much on, on, on cities for this reason in particular, right? I mean, even though it was organizing in cities, organizing in urban communities yeah. where there was some sort of production. That's true. And, and, and the problem, part of the problem really is that in Russia in 1917, about 75% of the population were working in agriculture, which means, uh, and that's equivalent to um, the position England was in in about 1600. So when you've got 75% of people working in agriculture, they're each producing enough food for themselves and a third of another person. And that's just not, uh, that's just not enough to sustain towns and, and, and urban growth and the industrialization that comes along with that. You need to have a kind of a revolution in agriculture and, and in agricultural production uh, before, you can, before you can build on that and kind of develop an industrial proletariat. And so, so, no, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so, um, so one, one of the things in the, that, that I look at in the book, really, once we can get out of the way, so firstly, we need to get out of the way this idea that Marx is somehow to blame for the Soviet Union. Recognise that he said that this, this revolution in Russia is, is unlikely to work. Um, then we can kind of take a step back and we can look at what Marx's theory of history says, we should, how we would look at it if it, was, if it was any other country. And when we look at Russia in 1917, it was very similar in many ways to England in 1600. And so... In a book, I go through the process that Marx describes. He spends a lot of time describing the emergence of capitalism in England. And he lists a set of criteria which were not in place in 1600 and which had to come into place before capitalism could emerge. And actually, when you then look at the Soviet Union, you see exactly those criteria being met. Some some of them before the the revolution from the 1860s, there was the emancipation of the serfs. But then really nothing very much changed until 1917. Um, and various processes that happened in the, in the Soviet Union, such as the collectivization of agriculture, that's almost the same as a process of eviction and enclosure going on in England. 
took a much longer time in England and they had to keep waiting for new technology to be invented. So it's kind of really condensed in, in the Soviet Union. But if you, if you can try and get out of your head the whole thing about trying to create socialism and whether or not they failed at that, and look at the things that they act, the policies that they did, and the changes that those policies made compared from 1917 until 1990, what they did was they put in place the missing pieces that, according to Marx, capitalism needs before it can develop. And then when, it, when the Soviet Union collapsed due to pressures from inside and outside and the weight of its own kind of inefficiency and bureaucracy, then the Russian oligarchs swept in, and that was the start, really, of Russian capitalism in 1990. So you can see the Soviet period and the immediately preceding period almost as Russia's transition from feudalism to capitalism. Interesting. Did 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 they um, did did he ever write about the, the 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 fear of a bureaucracy? I mean, the the, the fail obviously the failures that USSR um, so much of it being bureaucracy and 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 political, you know, however yeah. you want to say it, like the, the insider politics, the, the way that yeah. every sort of political infrastructure <laughs> corrupts itself. <laughs> there was a lot, and around kind of the Paris Commune and various events around there, there were lots of um, kind of infighting, I guess. So not necessarily infighting, but discussions and debates about the best way to proceed. And it's surprising, actually, most people who haven't read any Marx are quite surprised to also to realise that he didn't really write very much about what socialism or communism would look like. That's not to say he didn't say anything about it, but there's no kind of detailed blueprint there. Um, there's a kind of a 10-point plan early on in his life. But as he got older, he was much more kind of, um, he was much more open about how, exactly how these things might be achieved. And I think there's, there's always, there's, you know, it's, it's naive to imagine that you're going to kind of, everyone's going to swan off into a socialist sunrise without, without any d debates over how exactly that should be organised. But I don't think really kind of preempting that was, was, a, was a thing that occupied Marx very much. So how much of this was performative to to inspire folks to get moving, knowing very well that um, there would be failures uh, and, and in his lifetime, he would not see the ultimate fall? Or so I think, bizarre. yeah, I think um, I think quite a lot. And I think you, you have to remember there's, there's Marx isn't kind of a, a single data point. His work is something it evolved over decades. He wrote millions of words in, in books and journals and, and articles in newspapers and lots of correspondence. And there's kind of, as well as people often talk about a young Marx and an old Marx, but there's also Marx the political agitator and Marx the journalist and Marx the economist. And the, the, the one that is often forgotten is Marx the historian. And that's, the, that's really who I'm trying to bring out in, in this book. Um, he's, he's not a historian that looks at um, looks at the past and just says, oh, look, here's a collection of things that happened. Isn't that interesting? He's somebody that tries to put them together and understand the meaning of, of what's happening and to work out the processes that drive social change and historical change. And I think that's why this is important, because if we can work out, if we can take lessons from how we got from feudalism into capitalism, that might help us understand how we're going to get out of capitalism into something better that's going to come after it. Which, of course, Rosa Luxemburg was fully aware of. Um, sure. I remember, I mean, you talk about the, the, the British, the, you know, where they were in, in, in the stage 
that, you know, 1600s versus 1900s uh, Russia. But, you know, what about, you mentioned Paris Commune. I mean, what about the, the French Revolution and how much of that was an inspiration? Were the conditions similar in France to Russia when the revolutions went underway? Uh, similar, I think, yes. And I think if you, so if you look at uh, what happened in England in the 17th century and France in the 18th century, the, the revolutions there, which which kind of inspire a lot of people today. Actually, these these were revolutions that overthrew feudalism and, and introduced capitalism, and and so that kind of goes with my approach to say, well, actually, that's really what's happened in Russia through the Soviet era is the overthrow of feudalism and the introduction of capitalism. Even though no one in the Soviet Union wanted capitalism, obviously they weren't trying to lay, lay the foundations of it, but the things that they had to do to respond to the crises they faced led to those things being put in place according to Marx's kind of checklist of things you must have before capitalism they, the Soviets put most of those in place so I think there are similarities there um, obviously the ideology was, was, was different there was an intention to overthrow feudalism and to introduce kind of bourgeois ideology and, uh, and bourgeois equality but from France in the in 1789 whereas in Russia they, they were not at all trying to do that they just ended up um, putting those things in place. Um, can you explain just like a little bit more in detail about why specifically capitalism was needed? It was it was it because you know you, we talked about the revenue was was it because the state didn't have enough money to provide for everybody. What, can you break that down? Why capitalism is needed before you can have socialism? Yeah. So Mark Mark sees it really. So that the main thing is the is the material abundance. Um, if you, in, uh, you can't really have socialism until you've got an, enough stuff to share out, really, in capitalism. How do, you get, how do you get the technology to create enough stuff for everybody is you have capitalism? Um, and the reason for that is obviously nobody kind of designed capitalism. It, it emerges out of, um, out of feudalism as, a, as a, um, an aggregate of lots of separate kind of um, agendas and decisions. But once, it's, once, it, once capitalism gets going, it's so productive that whoever is adopting capitalism has a, an advantage over those that don't because they're able to, 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 to have access to much better technology and much more productive capacity. And that, that kind of creates a, this, this race and it creates its own momentum. And capitalism, Marx argues that capitalism is the only system really that can do that. It's the only system that can create industrialization and urbanization. And, and socialism requires that level of technology, according to and, Marx. And the state can't. The state can't do that. They were not in a position at that time, at least, to create that type of industrialization. The, the state, yeah. I mean, historically, they weren't in that position. And I think for Marx, conceptually, they just are not. That is not, that's not a thing the state can do. The state can't mimic the kind of the invisible hand of the market, which is... It's not, you know, it has lots of casualties. It's, <laughs> Marx isn't saying it's a great thing, but he's saying it has a role to play. And right. you, can't, you can't not have that, that capitalist era because no other system can develop the technology that's required. That's, that's Marx's kind of, he's, he's really firm on that. He's, and that's what he's writing to, to Russian revolutionaries in the 1880s for is because they're writing to him saying, hang on a minute. <laughs> saying that we can't have a revolution and it's going to fail and he, he's very um, ambiguous in his, in his kind of personal letters back but that his his message is well basically yeah that's that's it and then a couple of years later he comes up with this um 
this get out for them, which is, well, you can have a revolution so long as you spark revolutions in Germany and England and maybe America. Right, exactly. Um, and then in the pushback at the time, I think we're all aware of, of some of the dynamics, but can you describe the, the specific arguments between, you know, the trots and the, the whole community of, of the, the infighting that was happening, I guess, is the, the clearest way of saying it, between this specific dynamic? Um, it, what do you mean in, in 1917? Yeah, Russia? yeah. I mean, he, we all adore him now, but <laughs> not so much at the time, right? Marx, do you mean? Or, yes, 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 Marx. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, I mean, there were, there were there was a lot of infighting about exactly kind of how to get around Marx's prediction that a, re a revolution in Russia wasn't going to work. Um, and Lenin and Trotsky both came out basically and just said that, that that's it, we need to, we need to inspire revolutions in Germany. Basically, Germany was the obvious candidate because it was industrializing quickly and it was nearby um, and it had a strong socialist element. But the, um, the, the, the failure to do that really then left them isolated. Um, they, so they had uh, a period of, of several years fighting off basically for a counter-revolution from within. Mm -hmm. And also, as soon as World War I ended, then most of the Western powers sent troops there to fight against the, the, the revolution as well. So they're kind of being bombarded from all sides. And by the time they came out of that, the country was kind of destroyed. They'd had World War I, they then had a revolution, they then had this long period of civil war. And Lenin then took them back, sort of took a step back and introduced what he called the new economic policy, which was kind of a concession back to the market. Private property was allowed, private employment was allowed. Um, and he did this because he kind of recognized that they needed to, um, they needed to industrialize, they needed to electrify Russia. And he kind of conceded that the, that the market was the best way to do that. And there's a lot of opposition to that, but it worked kind of quite well, and they were they were looking at moving out of that into a, a system of five year plans at the time that, that Lenin died. And even as the kind of the infighting after that, Stalin kind of rising to power, the the five year plans were looked on as, as kind of um, they need they they felt like they needed to take the peasantry with them, right? With the, um, right. Uh, they needed to convince the peasantry that, that industrialization was needed and they were going to have to give up some of their, their surplus and they were going to have to produce more surplus. But they were kind of going to help them along with that. And that, that was how they sought whether that would have happened or not, we don't know. But certainly as soon as Stalin kind of consolidated his position, then all of that went out of the window and all the targets became hugely unrealistic and the methods then became quite brutal. Um, and that's something which actually, going back to the, the situation which Marx talks about with the emergence of capitalism in England, the same process, tearing the peasants off the land and, and basically enclosing their land into, into huge, much more efficient farms, and then creating from this peasantry who right. had felt attached to the land, you're creating a, a class of landless proletarians to go off and work in the cities. That was quite brutal in the Soviet Union in the 30s, but it was it was no less brutal in England in the 16th century when that process was going on. There's, there's you know, there were um, they introduced slavery for a short time to to, to basically enslave people who, who kind of tried to resist um, the early enclosure, and there were various things with branding people on the forehead, cutting off half an ear, selling their children, that kind of thing. All this was going on in the in in in, the, in England when we were doing that same process of basically confiscating the land from the people who were occupying it. Right. Um, how does this relate to today? 
I mean, you mentioned the Ben Shapiro's of the world, the Heritage Foundation yeah. types that are, uh, you know, doing their best to smear the legacy of Marx and confuse their audiences as to what socialism or Marxism or whatever. I mean, <laughs> they, they lump it all together. Um, but I mean, other than that, I mean, how does it, how do the lessons from, from what we've missed on Marx relate to the movement today? I guess that's what I'm Okay, saying. so I, th I think there's two main things really. Um, one is that we need to stop this kind of blaming Marx for the Soviet, Soviet Union and kind of trying to discount everything Marx ever wrote because the Soviet Union happened and, and it didn't succeed. So that, that's one, one side of things. But the other is that when we look at this, we, people often come, as I say, people come to, to Marx often through Lenin and Trotsky. And of course, because they're involved in the Russian Revolution, their language is very political and very much about kind of seizing the means of production. And the other way into Marx is often the Communist Manifesto, which is, again, it's, it's short, it's quite easy to read, but that was really the work of, I mean, Engels wrote most of it and Marx kind of redrafted it, but it was done on commission in a hurry. And um, Marx, it's kind of a call to arms and the, the, the 1848 revolutions are going on around them. But that's really the work of Marx, the journalist. If you look at Marx, the, the theorist, the Marx, the thinker, and the person who analyzes how change works, he, he the, the process of revolution doesn't have to mean manning the barricades and storming the Winter Palace. And actually, when you look at his um, discussion of the revolution, which got us from feudalism into capitalism, although there were flashpoints, there was 1789 in France, there was the English Civil War, and we had the glorious revolution as well in 1688. Those are kind of, that's like the end of the revolution. That's the, that's the, the actual revolution is the change in the way the economy works, the change in the way we understand what property is and who owns what property and even what type of property can be owned. You know, for a lot of human history, people were included in the set of things that can be owned. And pre-capitalist um, conceptions of property were very different to, to our kind of idea of property. People often had shared rights in things and the peasantry felt a real kind of, although they didn't own the land in that they couldn't sell it or bequeath it, they had a right to work on it and they had a right to, to the fruits of it or to some of, to some of that. And I think the, so one of the things we can learn from that is that the, the actual revolution, the, the, the vital processes that took us from feudalism into capitalism were these changes in the understanding of what property means and the relationships between people and, and, and who owned what. And then those flashpoints like the English Civil War, the Glorious Revolution and the French Revolution, this is kind of when the revolution is nearly complete, the bourgeoisie have amassed this amount of power and they're now in a position to seize political power and start, start formally running things their way and to introduce these kind of bourgeois institutions. But, but the actual revolution is a long process. It's not a seizure of power. And I think that that is kind of a, a message for us now because we're looking at... You know, how are we going to get out of where we are? How are we going to get out of capitalism? And clearly, we're not going to seize the mean production. That's not, that's not going to happen. We don't have the guns. We don't have the numbers. It's just if we did it, too many things that are really important would actually, uh, and, and too many people that we are supposed to be helping would actually end up suffering greatly by huge interruptions to supply chains and, and production processes. So we need to move there we need to and the way to do that is to take people with us so we need to win some start winning some arguments and then there's a whole kind of debate which is 
subject of my next book, where there's this whole debate about what those arguments are and politically how we organise and how we do that and what our, what our um, objectives and aims should be and what our methods should be. But I think that's, that's the, the lesson is, is that is that the real changes are not the, the seizure of political power, the real changes are the underlying economic processes. It's interesting um, and not written about enough just about how, how much our, the, the fabric of our society would fall apart. I mean, whether it's the infrastructure, yeah. uh, in telecom infrastructure, I mean, ask anybody in a hurricane torn uh, <laughs> city right now, yeah. just how important it is <laughs> to understand. Well, David Harvey got, got um, I think was it last year he got, he he talked about capitalism being too big to fail, and I think yes. that was an unfortunate choice of words. I, I I perhaps wouldn't have used that phrase because it reminds us of the the banks being bailed out because they're too big to fail. But I can see where he's coming from. You know, if we if, if some big seizure of power happens tomorrow, there are you know vaccination programs all over the you know the southern hemisphere. There are, there are aid programs, there are industrial programs. So people who's going to work tomorrow? Do you know you're going to get paid? What's it, it's not it's not 1917, it's not 1789. The world is a very complicated and interconnected place. And that's not to say I'm, I'm not saying oh well we have to put up with it or or anything else. I, I think but we need to be very sure about where we're going and, and how we're going to get there. And I think left we do this question of revolution or reform we have that we, that we have completely the wrong discussion there we have that discussion in terms of means do we should you know, revolution is throwing cocktails and reform is joining a union or something that that's not actually what that that question is revolution or reform is the question of ends do we try to reform capitalism or do we have revolution? A revolution would move us out of capitalism into socialism, but that doesn't necessarily mean we have to get there by a sudden violent insurrection. We can have a revolution that takes time. Uh, and Marx was open to that idea as well, that the older he got, the more he talked. He went, as things like universal suffrage were being pushed for, he was kind of quite optimistic about the, the, the prospects of democracy being, being used to introduce socialism. Fascinating conversation, very timely. Uh, Steve, I'm I'm excited to read your next <laughs> your next book, uh, if it does touch on where we go from here and the tactics, because it's extremely yeah. important for this moment. Um, thank you for writing this book. Yeah. Go check out uh, Steve Paxton's book, Unlearning Marx. It is perfect for the moment, why the Soviet failure was a triumph for Marx. Uh, and, and go correct all those right-wingers who are out there trolling us, smearing. Yeah. And, uh, and and go, you know, maybe it's a great gift for your family members, your neoliberal family members who probably agree with you on a lot of things, but uh, may not necessarily understand why. It's a good, 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 good introduction piece. Uh, Steve Paxton, thank you so much for joining us. We will be back in a second with our panel, our great panel for today's news. Thank you, Steve. We appreciate it. Thanks. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Oh, hey there. It's a uh, Nomi Key Show host, <laughs> Arun Chowdhury. I just want to give a shout out to Arun. Thank you for filling in for me yesterday. Uh, I was unable to host. Sometimes that happens. Life gets in the way. Real fun, but I heard you killed it. No, it was exciting for me. And I really learned how hard that, uh, I, mean, I forget who it is, one of the late night talk show people, but they were like that opening like monologue thing is the thing that'll kill you. That's the thing that'll kill you. 
talking to people is easy. You know what I mean? A couple of questions, natural security, blah, 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 you know, but like actually being like, I'm going to tell you something about something that's hard. And, and then thinking of something every day. I sometimes yeah. I wake up, I mean, now with the Biden administration, it's, there's plenty to talk about, but there was this, uh, <laughs> the, 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 every five seconds having a Trump crisis always gave you some, some spin on something. A so a lot of news hooks, a lot of news. That's the term, the hooks, uh, Arun Chowdhury, of course, is a political filmmaker. He is guest host you know he was the former uh first official white house videographer and worked as creative director for bernie sanders 2016 campaign for president and natalie sure welcome back she Thank is you. a writer and researcher she's written in the nation the atlantic buzzfeed jacobin etc cetera, etc cetera. you are uh you are the head of research for adam ruins on everything still right yes uh, the show's no longer on. I thought uh, I was so asking. I was reading that. I'm like, am I missing something? Because I thought it was. Well, go back and look at it if you can find the archives. <laughs> okay, um, I will. <laughs> we will correct that. All right. So, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, total crazy woman. Uh, man, uh, she is taking every opportunity to be performative and rile up her base. You know, the crazy base that stormed the Capitol with guns and Nazi. Uh, slogans and i mean just horrifying she has created a form of protest in the halls of congress uh let's play this clip real quick okay so <laughs> she is uh against the equality act share her neighbor marie newman newly elected uh wants to pass the equality act to just as as marjorie taylor green says to destroy women's rights and religious freedoms and Rep. Newman uh, mentioned that her daughter is trans, so it's a direct attack on her family. But it doesn't even matter because, I, I mean, man. All right, uh, performative. What's what's the goal here? I'll go to run first. Natalie, we lost your your camera. I mean, for sure, performative. Uh... And I think there's a lot of people who think that there's a lot of juice you can get out of kicking these culture issues just as hard as you can to squeeze some more votes out of your, uh, you know, district that has a certain makeup that people feel like is conservative and all that. But like, I don't, I don't quite understand. It's sort of a little bit hackneyed in terms of execution. Like, is this a sign from some other thing that no one's really sure what the trust the science part is referring to? I mean, I, I would say that it is performative, but a performative failure. Well, I mean, performative failure, yeah. Raising money, whatever. She's she's using all these things, but it's still it maybe keeping raising that, some money. Yeah, raising some money, but also the question is like, where does where does Trump's movement go now? And it's it's larger than I think we probably even feel, given the electoral results, the number of people who who voted for him. Um, Natalie, I mean, like. It, What's your take? Is this performative or something about like the, you know, continuing this Trumpist movement, this right wing extremist movement and keeping it together? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I make the same point every time I come on your show. So I, I hope you're or guests don't, or your audience doesn't think I'm a broken record. But yeah, I mean, ultimately the Republican Party exists to be a wish fulfillment for capital, right? Mm -hmm. uh, their function is to do whatever they can to make the richest people on earth very, uh, even richer still, 
And that's popular by definition. That is a very unpopular platform. Uh, and so over time, I think that they've really stoked culture war issues to try to peel more votes. They did that with the Bible belt in the 80s, really consolidated the religious right uh, over the past couple of years. I think that you've seen them lean harder into, you know, overt white supremacy. Now I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is sort of coming from this, you know, Facebook comment cesspool, <laughs> this newly coalescing <laughs> group of people. It's like plus. And you know, the difference between <laughs> yeah, it. the difference between, you know, the, the Republicans from a couple years ago and now, because like the Republicans were still leaning hard against these things. This vileness was always there. But I think up until the Trump era, you know, at least the elected officials would want some, uh, you know, disingenuous distance from this sort of overt ugliness, right? It was so disingenuous because obviously they relied on this coalition, but from the elected officials themselves, you know, you wouldn't have people saying and doing this kind of thing and the things that Trump said and did and the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene says and do. And I think that Trump's insight and, you know, the bandwagon that Marjorie Taylor Greene is jumping onto is the idea like, oh, well, when you just say it, they, they get excited. So you might as well do that. And so, you know, the overt callous cruelty, I think, is the one difference. Uh, right. and so that is startling, um, you know, just in terms of representation in the media, things like that. You know, I mean, just the, the absolute cruelty to just callously misgender a colleague's teenage child like that is just, I mean, I can't imagine doing that to somebody personally, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Well, I mean, <laughs> they can do it. If, if you have somebody in the party who's willing to, to be that extreme, then it makes the Romneys of the world and the DeSantis's, even though, you know, there's even division between the two of them, obviously, uh, look more palpable. And I, I want to roll this clip from The View about the future nominee of the Republican Party, because Romney seems to think it's going to be Trump. Hmm. Hmm. Doesn't mean he agrees, but let's, uh, oh. Let's, there we go. let's hear really it's is, is a scary thing. I, 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 I'm, I, I guess I shouldn't be shocked. The GOP is already looking ahead to 2024. I mean, this, this was surprising to me because what's the point of running if you already know who the, who the winner is going to be? Now, Mitt Romney is saying that if you know who decides to run again, uh, he would definitely get the nomination. But you just wiped out all these other people <laughs> in who, who might consider running. You know, and some Republican pollsters say Florida governor Ron DeSantis could be in the running because he's polling far ahead of other Florida Republicans like Marco Rubio. I mean, you know... <laughs> What is My the point to. of all of this? This is for us to talk about you-know-who when you-know-who is facing a whole lot of other jail time, possibly, in all the right, future. So, so why would yeah. they... I think it's because of ratings. Um, but they're like, <laughs> the ratings have like been going down now that Trump's not in office. But I mean, the reality is, is we, we, we should be thinking about the future of like, what, what is, what it, fascism is, has some, has been growing or, or leanings towards fascism or mm -hmm. fascist actions, as you could say, and who's going to, who's going to pick up um, this movement and keep it together. I mean, Run, you've been across the world uh, fighting these guys. Any wisdom that you can send across the seas <laughs> to us? 
I mean, no, and I, I actually would rely less on that and more of uh, my credentials as, as a Trumpologist. I, you know, I always watch the whole rally. Like I tell everyone, don't just watch the clips. You got to watch the whole rally. You really got to get into it. I'm actually would love to hear what y'all think, because like I am absolutely confounded. I think it's sort of a 7-10, 50-50 split, however difficult thing you want to do it, where Donald Trump, the talented Mr. Trump, is the man to lead the party that he has recreated in his image. He's really good at it. Uh, he knows what makes good television. He knows how all those things work. Also, he's rather dumb and super lazy and was a really terrible president. And it's hard to run on like a really bad record of like denying the disease, getting the disease, like, you know, like the series of things that, you know, as we've talked about many times on your show, that even so his innate talent almost brought him back to win again. Like he is... So there is something sort of off idiosyncratic and magic about him. And I can't decide if that means that he has to be the inevitable nominee or if just, you know, Tom Cotton or some other Trump without polite, you know, some polite Southern Trump isn't the answer. I well, is, is there a leader in the Republican Party who would be able, other than Mitch McConnell, who would have the power to stop a Trump from running again? And, and I, I agree with you, Ron. I mean, what the, it came down to three states and 42,000 votes and the Democrats lost seats. I mean, not quite a win for the Democrats. Seems like it's growing. Uh, so we, I, I will, you know, I, as much as I hate covering Republicans all day long, there's a point where we actually have to, as a movement, recognize like <laughs> Biden didn't do so great. <laughs> and, and we need to prepare for what we might be up against. So even though it's four years from now. Or what we it's, need to kill in the meantime. It's not who inherits Trump's coalition as much as who can have Trump's coalition and regular old Republicans at the same time, because that is a majority coalition and anything less than that isn't. Yeah, but he's still got regular Republicans. I mean, except for a few yeah. in swing states, like Kasich Republicans, maybe that's, I, I don't know. I mean, Natalie, is there anybody who can stop him? Uh, well, two things. One, yeah. one thing, a lot of people are obviously concerned that he's going to run again and win. And um, I'm not saying that's not a concern, but what I do find heartening about that is I, I still think that, I mean, media and media prowess is key to understanding Trump and his rise. Uh, he didn't win the presidency on purpose. I mean, he was, you know, running for a bunch of earned media. He was looking to kind of get set up as, you know, a right wing pundit. And, you know, he screwed up and did too well and won, uh, bumbling into the office in a way that I think was like a true indictment of Democrats and our media and political culture and many other things. Uh, so all of that said, you know, I mean, I think that that's going to be the role that he falls back into over the next couple of years. And like, let's be honest, he likes that so much more. You know, I mean, if he gets to be just a guy doing punditry on TV and every once in a while doing like massive rally-esque events that sell out, he's going to love that. Like, I'm not sure that he'll want to jump back into, uh, you know, electoral politics, but I do think that he will emerge as a very obvious kingmaker. Uh, you know, what king he makes people people keep talking about, oh, the next Trump, you know, it'll be someone who's already in office. I think that they should be looking closer at media mm. figures, you know, mm. that, that's, that's what yeah. was such a big uh, draw to Trump and helped him cobble together the coalition that he did. I mean, you know, in terms of yep. 
who who could replace him? I don't know, Tucker Carlson. Uh, Dorsey's uh, texting. Nine, I'm thinking Tucker. You're no, doing it wrong, like Tucker. I know it comes up over and over again. He is and it'll have Glenn definitely. Greenwald's endorsement too. It'll be like a whole pie. <laughs> I mean, whoever like... the kingmaker is, he's the tastemaker. That's for sure. He's the one who like you know sets the agenda every night. Yeah, no, he does. I mean, he had his ear. He he, he plays populist, just like Trump played yeah. populist. Even though he's wealthy, he comes from you know a very wealthy family. Um, has only had privileged upbringings, and yet you know he is the king of all populists. And uh, and you know there's like this little red brown alliance that's circling around Tucker too. So you know to to bring in any extra votes that they need. I I think that's a good prediction. It's the only person I can think of too. And we should stop him now. We should make sure that all of his advertisers uh, pull out based on the next stupid thing he said, just like Bill O'Reilly was taken down. We'll see if that happens. There is something about being a one-term president though. It makes you like a wounded animal. And so I think there's always this sort of part of you that like wants to like, you know, become whole. Oh yeah. (laughs) There's something, all the one-termers, they get, they're just a little off. So you do want to keep your eye on them. Well, Jimmy, I mean, Jimmy Carter at least revived He was off in a good way, but still, you know, they're an an idiosyncratic lot. You'd think that he was a good, you'd think that he was like an actual leftist as a president. Turns out he wasn't. (laughs) Um, All right, so speaking of leftist presidents that could have been, uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, he called Walmart the largest welfare recipient in the United States. The largest welfare recipient in America happens to be the wealthiest family in America, the Walton family, a family that owns the largest corporation in America, Walmart. This is a family that is worth over $200 billion. It is a family that has become $50 billion wealthier since March of 2020, during the worst public health crisis in over 100 years. This corporation that they own, Walmart, made over $15 billion in profit last year alone. And yet, despite this massive family wealth, despite these very high corporate profits, Walmart pays wages so low that tens of thousands of their employees are forced to rely on public assistance in order to survive. It's horrifying. It's a horrifying company. And it seems like because we've been so focused on Amazon, people forget that the warm up to Amazon was Walmart all around the $15 minimum wage, of course. Um, You know, I feel like we've been fighting Walmart since I was in high school. I know that. And that's been a long time uh, to put it lightly. Why do you think that the there's there's been so little the, the movement has not been able to tap into Walmart the way that, you know, there's been pushback against Amazon, for instance, a um, little bit of success around Amazon and hopefully more soon out of, uh, out of uh, Bellamer. Arun, what's your take? Well, I mean, look, and I think Natalie is going to jump over the top of exactly what I say and be like, yes, and immediately. But I think Walmart is very specifically an example of a corporation that captured the hearts, minds, and pockets of both Republicans and Democrats, very specifically, especially because the Clintons hailing from Arkansas, et cetera. And so they are just baked into the very cake of legislation about how retail works in America. Like they have been writing quite literally the law around how companies like themselves can operate. And so I think they're pretty pleased with the environment they find themselves in, and it will take a lot of undoing to get them out 
well, Amazon and some of the other people who are relying on big tech, it's a bit of uncharted te territory with a will they, won't they, with the government regulating them. Walmart's already been their own sheriff and figured it out. Do you think that they could like, we could pit Walmart and Amazon against each other? I don't know, that's just my thought. Natalie, I know you got some thoughts. Uh, well, uh, to carry on as promised, yes, and... <laughs> <laughs> um, to, uh, <laughs> and I guess, you know, in terms of pitting them against each other, um, you know, I mean, I think in a capitalist society, every firm is trying to become, you know, the, the dominant mega capitalist. So in that case, you know, I mean, I guess that they are in competition for domination, but they're also, you know, two people at the helm of the capitalist class. And so that, you know, puts them, uh, in cahoots with each other. Uh, so they're going to have some class solidarity as for, you know, why, why is Walmart still riding high and Amazon is less so? I, I think I, I don't buy the premise. I mean, I think as, uh, as Aaron was saying, I, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of bipartisan support for both of these com uh, companies in so far as capital has captured mm -hmm our political system from both sides, uh, you know, more largely to a larger degree on the Republican side. But, you know, I mean, capital is part of the Democratic coalition, too. And I think that the Bernie Sanders movement, uh, you know, part of the goal is to push capital out of the Democratic coalition. Um, but it's still very much there. Um, you know, I think that the key to to uh, disempowering both of them is a more powerful labor movement and a more powerful left. So, you know, I mean, Amazon is, is taking out all of the tactics that Walmart has to beat this union movement down. And, you know, I hope, I hope it loses and I'd love to see a resurgent, uh, organizing movement within Walmart as well. But, you know, I think that we have to think about this more broadly and that, you know, the key to beating both of them is a resurgent militant left. And I mean, but the difference is, is like, you still have fundamentally, if Amazon's eliminated tomorrow, communities aren't left without like grocery stores, which is something that Walmart did so well in eliminating, you know, so many uh, small mm -hmm. businesses across, you know, yeah. rural communities, different communities. So you know, there's, it's, they've been much more strategic and obviously it was the timing too with, with the internet, but um, all right, let's talk a little bit about the $15 minimum wage, because this is something that's just um, infuriating me. I, I, we don't have a clip of this, but I was watching CNBC yesterday uh, and I saw uh, an expert, economic expert talk about how we really need to ease into the $15 minimum wage. We just have to like, it has to be over time. I'm like, Mother effers, first off, $15 minimum wage was chosen to fight for 15 because of alliteration, not because of some sort of like economic projection. Um, true story. But also it started 10 years ago. I mean, I don't have to tell you guys as you know it, but this is a fight that started 10 years ago. It is way what it should be. Uh, nobody in America can live off of $15 an hour and pay for a one bedroom apartment, uh, at least pre-COVID, who knows now. Um, why, why have we like, I mean, what could we possibly do at this point to move Democrats, mainstream centrist Democrats into understanding how like, this is the most basic negotiation. This is the most basic negotiation, but it's not working. Tax something, the tactics need to, to I mean, something needs to shift. A run. <laughs> Anybody jump no, in, come I know. on. <laughs> I mean, look, there's nothing to say. It's sort of Democrats gonna Democrat. It's Lucy and the football, sort of shame on us. 
as Bernie would put it, if you don't ask for the whole loaf, you're just going to get crumbs. Why are we giving things away before people are voting already? Um, I mean, just the last couple of weeks, we've really seen the Biden administration cave on a lot of its promises, a lot of its more progressive promises, and seem to adopt negotiation tactics that are just not going to get people the goods. So yeah. all I have to say is Democrats are making the same mistakes that they always make, and that's sad. I mean, it's, it's becoming exhausting. I mean, we the fact that we're speechless because we've been complaining about this for the last, you know, since Obama. Um, and then with this, we have literally the same people. It's the same, same cabinet set making the same decisions. It's sort of, it's a little crazy. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's totally crazy. crazy. I mean, I, I just like what's so, I'm just furious that we didn't go bigger. Like, if you, okay, if you're going to get crumbs, why not go bigger? Why, why can't Bernie Sanders step up and say like $30 minimum wage or $25, I'm a $30 gal? Um, if you're I just making it up based on how it sounds, I think low 20s to me, messaging wise, sounds something like 23, <laughs> something below 25 sounds right. But I yeah. don't think that's a great idea. I think it should be based on something realistic. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but Natalie, I mean, it, it, this is this to me did not seem like it was going to be as much of a fight as it ended up being. We're in a pandemic. The economy is crashing still. We still don't have a good sense of it. Uh, it's been on the platform for the last two cycles uh, with a fight. But, you know, almost every single union in America uh, that gives to Democrats supports a $15 minimum wage. Uh, Biden, uh, you know, he, he, he acknowledged he needed to win with Latinos and they've been a big part of the fight for 15. Why? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this issue, uh, along with a couple others, uh, most gallingly illustrate whose side the Democrats really are on at the end of the day. Um, I mean, this should be such a gimme right? Uh, like $15 an hour, which already, as you have already noted, is lower than a living wage. Something that people have been talking about for years, that's enormously successful, that's already been passed at a couple of states without the, you know, negative boogeymen that they're always warning about. I mean, uh, now with the unified, uh, you know, Senate House presidency, they can do it in budget reconciliation. Uh, the fact that they are not absolutely jumping at this chance is absolutely infuriating, absolutely galling. And the next time someone tells you that Democrats aren't on the side of capital, you can laugh in their face. Well, and I'm curious I, that's to not see, an like, answer. That's just <laughs> no. I think you're right. I think, and, and but it's it's so interesting. It's like okay, obviously there's a ton of interests that are giving to the Democratic Party, but I want to know who's calling. I want to know who's calling these senators. Which industries? Which specific mm. lobbyists are the ones? Like, I don't believe all capital that gives the Democratic Party is this effing dumb. I just don't. If Florida can pass a $15 minimum wage with Ron DeSantis and all the right wing and small business, you know, organizations and lobbyists fighting against it then I'd like to understand who specifically is doing this. Who are they listening to? Are they just the usual actors or is there is there a coalition? And I think we should start highlighting them. I don't know. You think about the industries that pay, you know, I, I mean like chambers of commerce, massive, uh, you know, restaurant and food service and grocery uh, mm -hmm. business owner conglomerations. I don't know the names off the top of my head, but it's not too mysterious who's no. against the minimum wage. It's, you know, the people's bosses and the owners who whose bottom line would be mildly threatened by paying everyone a minimum wage. Um, you know, those are the people who are against it. And frankly, those people are very politically connected and influential. We'll see how it's, you know, 
we all know it's bad politics. We'll see how bad it is. But my instinct, and I'm sure y'all share it, is that this is the first sort of paved mile of the road towards uh, a Republican majority in the House in 2022. Uh, you know, the rest being exactly when those checks arrive on people's doorsteps, which if it's not to the middle of March is a problem also. But these very popular with the people and not with some of the lobbyist policies are the gimmies, are the kind of freebies that Democrats should be scooping off the trees and scooping out of the streams in these first few months. Uh, And the fact that we're not here doesn't give me hope for anything being accomplished, you know, even... It's hard to know what Biden thinks his health care for Obama is, right? If he does, and we were talking on the show last night, if he does subscribe to the unfortunate notion that political capital is something that you spend once rather than something you use to get gain momentum, kind of FDR style, uh, what does he want to spend it on so bad? And it's just not really clear. Not taking children out of cages. We know that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean that's great. Just, just to make a clear, to clarify it, you're meaning that that Obama put all of his energy into Obamacare, and yeah. and then everything else kind of died as a result, uh, with the exception of a few things, because that was the fight for the next ten years. So, uh, well, maybe all it's near a tandem, guys. Maybe yeah. it's near a tandem. I think that might be it. I think we're gonna be. Uh, <laughs> That's the hell. We are all going to be in near like like purgatory for the next ten years. All right, I appreciate you guys. Thank you for joining us, Natalie Schur, uh, Arun Chowdhury. Thank you for joining us from Berlin as usual. Uh, thank you to everybody for watching. If you haven't already, make sure to smash that like button, click that subscribe button. I didn't do any promos today. Join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. That is how we keep the trains running. That's how we keep the lights on if the power grid's working. Uh, trust me, it makes a huge difference. We are incredibly grateful to everybody. It is hard to do a daily show. Some shows do once a week. You know, this is a hard thing to do. And so Patreon is keeping us, us going because you never know what the Googles are gonna do. Uh, we have to diversify as they say in capitalism. All right, some shout outs. We have Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska sending some coffee money, of course. And Pete from Oakland, on point, Nomiki, my friends and I have been talking endlessly about the Biden administration's cruel immigration behavior. Thank you for such clear advocacy. Thank you. Um, we can't let them get away with this. It's, it's, they're on camera. It's the most disgusting political play I have seen in a long time, um, especially in this environment. Solar panels in the White House 2021, send some love. That's a very specific number, solar panels in the White House 2021. Uh, Barley Hop 67 says, Laura Trump in 2024, if Donald doesn't run, oh my God. Yeah, there's rooms, rumors of her running for like Senate, I believe, if, if or her, I think it's Senate. Uh, Austin Coates says, I just got my book club book delivered today. Yes, we will talk a little bit more about that tomorrow when we have some more time. I'll talk about uh, the next book club choice. Go sign up for a book club if you haven't already. It's fun. We have some great interviews coming up. I just got the booking, uh, the bookings for the interviews with our authors finalized. So it's very exciting. We're getting into the, the groove. It takes a little bit of time because distribution is not an easy thing. I'm learning. Also, the Postal Service is under attack, uh, which puts another you know, piece of frustrating just steps along the way that we have to deal with. All right. Shout out to Professor Harvey Kay. We see you in the chats, always there. Uh, Mini doctors, Mario, thank you for working those algorithms. I would not know how to do that 
it takes a certain type of person to understand algorithms. So thank you. And as always, thank you to our moderators on YouTube, Bob C. Choken, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel, and on Twitch, Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Our Means, and Nug Wrangler. Thank you for keeping the chat room troll free. And a huge welcome to our new super mod, Nightbot. Thank you. I love this. This is a great community. Uh, guys, if you haven't already, anybody we just li listed, send us your address, your mailing address to the Show at gmail.com. We want to send you some swag. want to send you one of these if we can. Do I have a bag? I don't have a bag handy. And a bag uh, and a sticker. So please send us your information. All right, I'm out. We will see you tomorrow for Femme Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, right here. And to all of our patrons, you know, we'll see you tomorrow too. Solidarity. <laughs>